The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, American Symphony. From Academy Award nominee Matthew Heinemann, both IndieWire and Variety have named it one of the best documentaries of the year. The Hollywood Reporter says American Symphony is a moving love story, a celebration of art, resilience, and the mutability of the human spirit. American Symphony is available now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Basil Siokos, Senior Programmer, Nonfiction, Sundance Film Festival. The 2024 Sundance Film Festival, which runs January 18th through the 28th in Park City and Salt Lake City, Utah, marks its 40th anniversary this year. For the third year in a row, Basil joined me to preview Sundance's stellar documentary lineup and to discuss what's new and what's special about my favorite festival. A note that Mike and I will be in Park City taking in some movies and recording some interviews with documentary directors who have films in this year's lineup. Hopefully, we'll see you on the mountain. But if you can't make it in person, the festival will be screening some films online from January 25th through the 28th. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Basil Siokos, Senior Programmer, Nonfiction, Sundance Film Festival. Basil Siokos, welcome back for a third time to Top Docs. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure to chat with you. It's great to see you and talk to you, Basil. I did listen to our chat from last year and I, I was reminded how much I enjoy talking about the recently released Sundance lineup. I'm equally excited by the 2024 Sundance lineup, which this is going to be the 40th edition of Sundance. Amazing. Yeah, we're very excited. It's a nice landmark time for us. We're always happy to talk about these films and help introduce them out into the world. Great. Well, we will be getting into a discussion of the various sections that include documentaries. But first, I have a couple of introductory questions, more general questions. Last year when we talked, Eugene Hernandez had been named as the director of the Sundance Film Festival, but it was too late in the game for him to really have an impact on the lineup last year. But here we are in 2024, so this is Eugene's first Sundance. I'm just curious to hear how that went in terms of, you know, his leadership and if he's brought any new ideas or new twists to Sundance. It's uh, exciting to work with Eugene in this role. Yeah, as you said last year, he came on board a bit too late. So just kind of observed part of the process, but didn't have a hand in actually programming. So this year he was actively involved. You know, obviously Kim Yutani is our director of programming and she leads the charge, but he was with us throughout the entire process, watching films, contributing to the discussions that we all have. We love working with Eugene. He listens a lot. He's an active listener. He really respects the programming team and the expertise that we all bring to the process. And he has his own opinions about films. And, and that's part of what we do in our process. We all give each other space to be able to discuss and debate films and, and make those decisions. In terms of any kind of radical changes, uh, nothing really to speak of on the level of impacting the program. 
He handled the role of leading the festival team in the way that he does everything, which is that he is collaborative. He pays attention to the folks that know what they're doing, like Kim and the programming team, while still offering his own advice and, and his own take on things. It was a really smooth process, I'd say, personally, to have him be in charge within that programming selection process. In terms of the collaborative nature of the programming process, is it a consensus? Is it a majority vote? How do you come to agreement about a particular film and whether to screen it or not? Uh, it's a great question. We don't believe in siloing necessarily as some other festivals might, even festivals I've been involved with. Uh, I've, I've been guilty of it myself. While we have focus areas, so I, I'm part of the doc team of five people. There's also a, a team of midnight programmers, a team of world cinema fiction, for example. But even though we may take the charge on those initials, looking at the work within those kinds of categories, if something is a serious contender for consideration for the festival, everybody watches it. The entire programming team of 13 people so what happens is we identify the titles that we think are the strongest contenders, everybody watches them, and then we convene a very long, day-long meeting where we essentially go around the table. We start off with a kind of a yes, no, maybe call on the film, a temperature check, as it were, and then each have the opportunity to talk about the film and what worked about it for us or what might not work about it. And then ultimately, it's collaborative, so it's not necessarily we all have to come to a, a complete agreement, but Kim and Eugene will take everybody's commentary to heart, take any reservations that somebody might have, take passion into consideration. If somebody's really like being able to sway the rest of us with a compelling argument as to why this film belongs in the lineup, that is certainly taken under consideration. And then ultimately it's a question not only about an individual film, but how the films work together and how the lineup comes together. We pretty much make I, I would say a good 90 to 95% of the lineup decisions all at the same time. We don't really do a lot of rolling early invitations. Every now and then we have to just to secure a film. But for the most part, Kim will look at the board as it were. What belongs in this competition versus what might be in the premiere section or what might work in next? Does it all work together? There are times where films are on the board until they're not, like something might just not make it in the end. It's a very organic process, but it's one that's really quite unique. And we really love it because it allows us each to feel that we have a voice in what ultimately takes shape. So it sounds like there's a marathon meeting involved. Multiple. I, I, should, okay. qualify, uh, I should clarify that we have weekly meetings for a couple months, and then it culminates in a couple of two days of marathon meetings to make the final selections. Many filmmakers know Sundance because they've submitted their films to you. Are there any trends this year in terms of submissions? I believe last year was a, a record year. How was this year? That record is broken. Uh, it was a, we were surprised, again, given the strikes, given the sort of uncertainty within the marketplace. We weren't sure what the numbers would look like, but we ended up having the most submissions overall ever, 17,435. Now that is features and shorts. So I want to be clear on that. If it were all features, I think I would be not living right now. It was a, a very surprising to get that many films. It also was the most international submissions ever, which is curious as well. Yeah, we were really happy to have just a wealth of projects to consider. In terms of trends or anything like that, it's hard to say. The submissions do vary, although typically they've been in this kind of range, not quite this high. But we saw a small dip in the pandemic years in the very beginning because this, we, what we expected in terms of films being delayed and all that kind of thing. But to see this kind of large increase was quite special and it made our job pretty challenging, but also lovely in the sense that we were able to see so many fantastic projects. Yeah, I was specifically curious about international submissions. It's interesting 
to hear that they were up this year. And I feel like overall, the Institute and also the festival does seem to mirror the international spectrum of cinema more and more, I think, over time. Yeah, we, we've been trying to build up our world cinema for quite a while. We want to be a place where international filmmakers feel like their films will resonate with audiences that will connect with industry, will have opportunities within the marketplace. So it is heartening to see that filmmakers are following suit and trusting us with taking a look at their films for consideration. And of course, we're thrilled to have the world cinema that we do in our lineup this year. Certainly, we want to focus on the art of these films today rather than the business side or the industry. But I'm just curious, I didn't track myself among the films that were announced, if there were fewer films, more films that come to the festival already attached to a mm. distributor, especially a U.S. distributor, or if most of the films come in without distribution. We've made a sort of concerted effort in the last several years under Kim, particularly to try to find the right balance between already distributed titles and titles ready for acquisitions for the marketplace. And we landed somewhere in the neighborhood of around 20% of titles being already distributed, about 80% still looking for sales. We've maintained that in the last, I'd say the last three or four years at this point. And that's the case again this year. We're deliberate about that. We see the value and we love seeing the new projects from distributors that we have relationships with. They are an important part of what we do and they're an important part of the eco larger ecosystem to make sure that independent film has a place to show. So it's not like we want to say, no, we cannot show distributed films. That doesn't make sense for us. But at the same time, we are and have always been a place of discovery. And so we want to be that space where films that have not yet sold, that have not been shared with industry yet, have a chance to connect with audiences, have a chance to connect with critics, and of course, with the industry that hopefully will give them a life after the festival. So that, that's kind of where we landed. And we feel pretty good about that number. Are there any changes to the sections themselves? I think last year in the competition sections for docs, at least, there were 12 films, and I think maybe you're back down to 10. But can you tell us about any changes? We did end up reducing the size of our four competitions, the World Cinema and U.S. Documentary and Dramatic, so those four sections. They were 12, and that number has varied over time. In pre-pandemic years, some of those were up to 16 films per section, but they varied between 10 and 12 over the last few years. Part of that is the idea of trying to present a more tightly curated selection so that we are able to give full attention to a slightly smaller number of films and make sure they are connecting with audiences and, and reaching industry and all of that. We won't lie, there's also the realities of the budget and cutting number of films is, was part of that as well. Nothing so dramatic, but there is overall a slightly smaller number of films in the lineup this year. But we programmers, it's funny because programmers hate the smaller number in the sense that it makes our job even more like, ah, we have to kill our darling. There's some films that we really love. And if we had that 11th or 12th slot, maybe we could have gotten it in there. But it does mean that we are really conscientious and listening to each other around what will make the section the best section possible, the most balanced, what are the voices that we really feel the, the strongest about giving a space to. So ultimately, it's not a terrible thing. Obviously, filmmakers out there that did not get in uh, would feel differently maybe, but we are very happy with the lineup that we have. You know, if it were a little bit bigger, programmers would probably be a little happier, but we'll see where we go in the future. You know, I think that there are good reasons to think about a more condensed lineup, but there's also good reasons to spread the wealth a little bit more as well. So we'll see where the, the next year takes us. 
So last year was the first year back on the mountain in Park City and in Salt Lake, because you also screen films there. Since 2020, obviously the pandemic interrupted the festival for a couple of years. How did it go back in person? It was obviously a, a, a hybrid. You also showed films virtually, but as someone who not just not only programs films, but you're there, you're introducing films, you're very much a part of the events. How was it? Uh, it was great. I can't overstate how excited we were to be in person again and to just have the energy in the room to have sort of the theatrical experience with these films and with the filmmakers. Uh, I love what we did online for the years that we had to be exclusively online. It was essential for us to be able to present work that way, to be able to share the work with audiences of our fantastic filmmakers. But there is something special about being in person and being in a room, in a dark room with other people watching a shared experience. And people were very thankful about that. We felt the sort of love and the excitement about being back together from our regular film goers to industry, to press, to filmmakers, of course, everybody really seemed excited to be there. And, you know, it was a weird year overall. Everybody knows it in terms of the larger marketplace, but in terms of cinema going, film culture, it was really quite special to be back. And, and we welcome the opportunity again to be back in Utah in less than a month at this point from the time we're recording. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be there in person and I was just getting some chills thinking back to the first day screening of Little Richard, I Am Everything, which was just electric. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, for us, it's we love what we do, but we cannot do without the filmmakers and without the films, obviously. And so just being able to be in that room, like when Lisa Cortez was presenting the film to a packed house of excited people to see this film and every other filmmaker at the festival as well, it's something special. And you can't duplicate that in the same exact way. There is just that sort of aspect of being in that same room. And we loved it. And, and we really felt it from people. For people who maybe didn't make it back last year, so it's been a few years, but they're planning to go this year, is there anything that maybe is new or different? Absolutely. One of the big things that I can talk about that we did change this year is that our opening day, traditionally, and again, this has changed over the years, but for the last several years, we've had what we've called day one screenings. We've had a more or less a selection from each a section that kind of kicks off the festival on the opening night. What's different this year is that we've expanded that dramatically. Screenings are starting now at noon, not in the late afternoon, early evening. And we're showing, I get the number wrong, but I think it's 18 or 19 uh, films are premiering on that opening day, reflecting all the diversity of the lineup. So it's really exciting for us to be able to come back in with a bang, bring a lot of just fantastic films to audiences even earlier, give more of an opportunity for films to be talked about in that crucial opening weekend of the festival. For people that are thinking about coming out in person and haven't quite made their plans yet, just we really do encourage you to keep that timing in mind, that there will be a lot more to see on that first day of the festival. And then in terms of other things that have changed, there are certain smaller changes that have been made to sections. One is a kind of name thing, which is that what used to be called our kids section is now called a family matinee, just a rebranding of it, but it's essentially the same kind of idea. And then more relevant, I think, to our conversation is we've handled our episodics in different ways in the past. For several years now, we've basically treated episodics a little differently in the sense that Episodic series that came in with distribution, particularly documentary or fiction, to be honest, have been placed within our premieres category, whereas we had an indie episodic section, which worked for undistributed titles that were seeking distribution, seeking a way to get out into the world. 
often pilots or, you know, a shorter format. This year, we decided to not make that distinction any longer and just create a singular episodic section where we can focus people's energy into the sort of episodic serial sort of format. And so for this year, that's what it's called episodic. And we have several projects there. It's pretty documentary heavy, which I love, but there's a showcase of fiction pilots. But on the documentary side, we have some really fantastic series that are being presented within there some that are already distributed, some without, and from a really a fantastic assortment of alumni filmmakers, many of them, which is always nice to see. We have a new Rory Kennedy project there. We have stuff from Richard Linklater and Alex Stapleton, who've been at the festival before, and Deborah Granick has a project as well. So it's a, it's a really a kind of exciting way of re-injecting some new energy into that section. Let's roll with that. I was going to save that section for the end, but let's get right to it. As you said, it's a really exciting group of films with some well-known filmmakers attached to a number of them. You mentioned Deborah Granick. I was particularly interested in Con Body versus Everybody. Can you tell us what that film is about? Yeah. So this is a, I might be getting wrong, but I think it's a six-part series. We're showing two parts of it. This is a project that Deborah has been working on for nearly a decade, I think like eight, eight plus years at this point. And it follows a man who was incarcerated and is, has now since been released. While he was in prison, he developed an exercise regimen that helped focus him and get him in shape and all, all of those things. And he's an entrepreneur and he comes out of this incarcerated situation and decides to start a gym where he uses the regimen that he's built up to help other people get into shape. And what's more is in opening his gym, which is called Conbody, he also hires other formerly incarcerated individuals to give them a, a, a chance to do something else with their lives, to combat the unfortunate cycle of recidivism. Through this story of resilience and second chances, but it also is realistic and shows the difficulty that comes after prison and the way that society is built up to not give formerly incarcerated individuals uh, a chance. It's a really moving a story that kind of digs deep into what this gym and what this more larger, what this idea means for both the founder and the other people that work with him. Really well done and an engrossing serial format. We expect fully that people will see these two episodes and want to see the rest of the project. You answered my next question, which was going to be self-serving, which is, could I expect to see all of the episodes or a couple? It sounds like two. We presented episodics in different ways in the past. It's kind of a balance between length as well as what makes for a satisfying experience for the viewer. Also, how much can we fit in and be able to put the spotlight on several projects? In this particular case, we are showing a couple parts. But other things like the God Save Texas series, it's an anthology. So it's a three-part series, not sequentially connected, but thematically connected. And it's based on the book by Lawrence Wright. We will be showing all three parts, which are three standalone sort of mini documentaries, essentially. Actually, the Richard Linklater is more of a full length. The other two are about hour longs. So it depends on, depending on the way that the episodics sort of run out, the rollout is either a couple of episodes or sometimes the full thing. And we indicate that information on our website so people have a sense of what they're getting into. Yeah, that one also sounded intriguing to me. Obviously, Lawrence Wright is an amazing writer about Texas and Richard Linklater is Somebody who we're always interested in what he's up to, it will be interesting to see him in the director chair for one of those three episodes. The thing about this series that's really interesting is that they are also personal. So it's basically each director is telling a story about their hometown, some unique aspect of for Richard, it is about Huntsville, Texas and the prison uh, and the death penalty for Alex Stapleton. It's about Houston and the impact of the oil industry on black Houstonites. 
Black Texans, basically. And then for Ileana Sosa, it is about El Paso, uh, what it means to live on the border and what that does to the people in the communities um, on both sides. So it's really personal takes on the meaning of home and different elements that show how diverse and different Texas is. In terms of the three other documentary episodics, did you want to mention any of those? Yeah, I'd love to quickly just say The Better Angels of the Gospel, according to Tammy Faye, is by another alumni, Dana Adam Shapiro. You know, it's funny, when we knew that there was another Tammy Faye Baker story, we were just sort of like, really, we kind of have done this, haven't we? But we were all just shocked that we learned so much and that there is a lot more to her story and to the larger story of the PTL ministry. It's one of those, and and it happens with a lot of the sort of biographical documentaries that we have this year, where you might think you know the story, but you actually don't. There's a fresh take on it. So we're really excited to be able to present two parts of that four-part series. And then really also excited about Lala, which is the story of Lala Palooza. Dating myself, I went to several of the original first series of Lala Palooza in the 90s. And so for me, there was a nostalgic appeal to this. It's also funny because one of the things that we related to is that this is about putting on a giant event with multiple moving parts, lots of personalities in terms of these performers and everybody else that's behind it. Many ways, it's like putting on a festival, to be honest. And so there's a kind of connection that we all felt to it on that way. So leaving even beside the nostalgic appeal for people of a certain age, it's just a really fascinating look at this cultural event that sort of took on a life of its own, had a rise and a fall, and then a rise again. So really, really well done. And again, that one's a three-part series. We're showing two parts of that. And then Finally, within the episodics on the doc side, we have Rory Kennedy, who we love having at the festival. She's a several time alum. She has the Synanon fix. This is just really an eye-opening look at the sort of rehabilitation center turned what many consider a cult. I had not known about this. I'm not of that certain age, so I did not know that much about the Synanon organization, but she does a masterful job of delving into what this organization began as and how it turned and why it turned over time into something very different with really amazing testimony from people that were there at the time as part of the organization and amazing archival. It's, it's a really fascinating film. No surprise coming from Rory, but I'm really, really excited about that one as well. And Rory is an alum of this podcast. Folks can check that out, our, our previous interview with her. And I'm looking forward to that episodic myself. I may be dating myself. I do know about the Synanon phenomenon, but I know it's such a deep story. There's so many twists and turns, so I'm looking forward to that. Let's move over to the U.S. documentary competition section. There's 10 films, as you mentioned, in this section. What would you like to start with? We love the diversity that we have in this lineup in terms of storytelling approaches and subject matter. I'll start alphabetically last. How about that with Union? This is by Stephen Mang and Brett Story. Stephen is an alum with the festival from Crime and Punishment, a really masterful film about policing. This film looks at the uphill efforts of a group of Amazon employees, former and current, to unionize in Staten Island. It is down and dirty in the trenches looking at how this work gets done and the obstacles to it. Really fascinating, observational, and fly-on-the-wall type of filmmaking. Um, Really, really happy to have this film and it's an important, urgent story as we see the attempts of the rise of unions throughout the U.S. in recent months and recent years. I also want to point out Skywalkers, a love story. Gosh, this one is the kind of film that you can show to folks that are not necessarily even doc folk. They have such a visceral reaction to it. It really plays like a heist. 
It's gripping. It is scary. It is vertiginous. It's a really just special film that we think is going to look amazing on the big screen and we'll have audiences talking about. I don't want to say too much more about it, but it really is quite fascinating and quite beautiful in terms of the kinds of acrobatics that this team does when they do the work that they do climbing buildings. I also be remiss if I didn't mention Frida. Again, one of those examples I just mentioned earlier about biographical documentaries that you you think you already know the story. Yes, Frida Kahlo, there's been much written about her and many films made about her as well. But this is really quite special. It is by Carla Gutierrez, who is an accomplished documentary editor. And this is her feature directorial debut. She brings a sensitivity and a certain sense of storytelling to this that speaks to her background as an editor. It is really quite beautiful. It's told through Frida's own voice, through recordings, her journals, and has the most exquisite animation that helps to bring a certain texture to the film as well. Really lovely film. And one of those, again, where we were so just blown away by learning so much more about a subject that we thought we knew everything about. So very happy to have that film as part of the lineup. And I'd, I'd also love to, to mention a film from an alum who was a part of our first pandemic year, Sally Aitken, who made the film Playing with Sharks. She's an Australian filmmaker, but the film that she made this year is very much a U.S. story, very much a Los Angeles story called Every Little Thing. It is about a woman named Terry Messer, who is the only, I think, the only hummingbird rehabilitator in the city of Los Angeles. If people find an injured hummingbird or a nest or whatever, and don't know what to do, they call up Terry and she takes care of these tiny, fragile little creatures and helps try to bring them back to health where she can. It feels like a very simple story, but it has so many profound truths about the act of caring for something else, what that means, why we do it. And it speaks also to, you know, her own reasons for doing it speak to her own background and things that happened in her past. It is a lovely film. It is beautifully photographed. And we say that not only is Carrie the protagonist of this film, but so are all of these hummingbirds who have their own personalities and storylines and fantastic names like Jess and Wasabi. And it's just a joy to watch this film and, and another one that will look just exceptionally beautiful on the big screen. You're getting me excited about all of those. I did notice that I think five of the 10 in this section have two directors associated with the films. And even actually in the world cinema, I think four of the 10 directors collaborating with each other seems to be happening more and more possibly, or even if it's not more common, it's just, I think, worth noting. When you mentioned Union, for instance, I was really intrigued by that pairing of Stephen Meng and Brett Story, because based on their previous work, they do have very different styles. So I'm curious about how, you know, those styles come together in this one film. Yeah, I mean, the collaborative nature of documentary filmmaking is something that I've noted for quite some time. I feel like it's more common than it is in fiction, for sure. I think it's just the nature of how difficult documentary filmmaking is, uh, how long it often takes, and the need to work with a crew and a team that you trust and believe in. And I think that's borne out in all of these films, especially with some of them. Like, I didn't mention Gaucho, but that is the filmmakers behind The Trouble Hunter, so they have a history working together. And so I think that those kinds of filmmakers that are able to create partnerships that work and they figure out the division of duties and who does what best. And I think that it is really important. But yeah, in terms of union, I agree. It's a really interesting melding of these two filmmakers, and they both bring something, I think, special to telling the story. 
One thing that I was curious about is I also am executive director of the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, and we just finished our festival, our 32nd in October, and I was going through some survey responses, and one person said, why don't you show more films about AI? My response to myself was, give us five minutes. Like next year, I expect to see some films about AI, and here we go, Sundance 2024, uh, you've got Love Machina, and I think there's at least one other film that certainly delves into AI. It's one of those organic things that's in the zeitgeist, right? It was obviously a huge part of the strike conversations as well, but this takes a very different perspective, different take on AI and, and technology even more broadly, because there's a certain number of films that may not be specifically AI, but are dealing with sort of our relationship with technology. It was a fortunate sort of happenstance that so many of these films are dealing with these topics and were exceptionally strong and we wanted to include them. But really briefly, Love Machina, also part of the U.S. documentary competition, fascinating film about a couple, Martine and Bina, who are technologists, futurists, have been part of advances in technology. Martine was one of the founders of Sirius XRM Radio, for example, and she loves her wife so much that she wants to figure out a way to keep their love going on into infinity. To do that, they are mapping Bina's consciousness, memories, thoughts, et cetera, into an AI called Bina48. This film looks at what that means and looks at their relationship and their past, but also what does it mean to try to replicate oneself into an artificial intelligence? We are very excited that Venus should be coming to the festival and, and maybe interacting with the audience as well. Having Bina and Bina 48 together there is going to be special, we think. But yeah, it's a really fascinating film. And it's a love story, which is also just, we love love stories within documentary. We always have these hard, dark topics that to have sort of a, a film of light and joy is, is really interesting as well. Another one that I should mention is in our world's cinema documentary competition, which is Eternal You. Another ret returners to the festival, they were at the festival previously with the cleaners, Hans and Moritz, German filmmakers. And this is a really fascinating film about AI and, and really about the potential, but also the potential for maybe unintended consequences or even negative consequences of AI. Uh, and what they look at in this case are several different developers who have created different tools to essentially try to recreate the dead in some form. It might be a chatbot, it might be a VR experience, but it is different ways of letting people, letting survivors have moments of closure or connection with a loved one that has passed on. There are lovely heartfelt stories in this, but then there are also stories about the potential damage that could happen where maybe somebody feels that they are being held hostage by an avatar of their loved one. Or what are the economic ramifications of being told, ah, I want to keep on continuing to have a conversation with my lost mother, but in order to do that, I have to pay money for it. They don't shy away from these really thorny ethical questions when dealing with this new technology as it develops. Really fascinating film. And, and to see those two in conversation is interesting as well. And of course, we have other films that are dealing with AI or technology in different ways. I will quickly mention a project in the New Frontier section, which is called Being, the Digital Griot. That is going to be something special. That is going to be a, a, an actual interactive experience for the audience where they are listening to an artificial intelligence that has been powered by a data set made up of exceptional Black thought leaders, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, folks like that. And this AI called Being has led decolonialization workshops in the past. 
its movements have been based on the sort of drag house culture as well. So it's a really fascinating look at sort of race and representation when it comes to technology. It'll be an interesting experience where audience is going to be able to interact with this being and try to learn something from it from a very different perspective, recognizing that, of course, technology is in certain ways limited by its developers and the biases and perspectives that they have. There's others in the lineup as well that kind of also touch on those questions. Seeking Mavis, Mavis Beacon, for example, in our next section, not exactly AI, but dealing with these questions around technology and representation. Eno, which, which is Gary Huswitz's film, not AI, but about generative filmmaking, which is really fascinating, using technology in a different way to create a different kind of experience of how to put a film together and what that experience is like for the audience. Yeah, that one, it intrigued me. The, the description says groundbreaking generative documentary, a film that's different every time it's shown. How does that work? It's great to listen to the director, Gary Huswit, who obviously you know from films like Helvetica, to listen to him talk about the origins of this project because he's made several films. He takes them out to festivals or on screening tours or in theatrical release. And he said that he was finding himself getting bored going along on these tours and watching the same film play over the same way, obviously, time and time again. And he was thinking to himself, he also has a background in loves music. He was also thinking like, why can't filmmaking be something like a concert experience where you might go see your favorite performer on a Wednesday and they're going to play three of their best known hits, but then throw in a couple of B-sides, right? And then they, you go back two days later and the set is entirely different. Maybe they'll throw in one of those familiar songs, but everything's completely different order and they're going to play more undiscovered gems that people don't necessarily know. So he thought to himself, how do you do this? And so he worked with a technological developer in the UK to basically create what they call a generative engine. This film is all built by people, right? It's not an AI situation, but what they've done is they've filmed with Brian Eno, also known for his generative production, like how he creates his own music and works with different artists in different ways to create unique approaches to how to compose, how to put together different songs, etc. It's a question of blending the perfect subject with this perfect approach, which is essentially the idea that the film, it has the same beginning and the same ending. In the middle, it is I wouldn't say an infinite number, but a lot of different permutations of how to put that information together. So what happens is, let's say at the beginning of the film, it sets things up. Brian knows talking and he might mention his early days. He might mention certain people he's collaborated with, or he might mention the way he approaches composing music, let's say. I'm dumbing this down because I don't really know all of it either, but that basically creates a kind of set of metadata that could trigger any number of different scenes that have been added together that deal with maybe his upbringing, maybe his early days at Roxy Music, maybe his collaborations with Bono and U2 or David Bowie, maybe uh, a, a sequence where he talks about how he creates obstructions to figure out how to get through creative blocks. And so those things are edited by real editors, very talented editors, humans, but they've figured out ways that they are like creating linkages between different scenes based on different things that are within those scenes. And the engine decides what scene will play next. And so what it means that the film will be different each time it shows is that let's say we're showing the film five times at the festival, Gary and his team are going to generate five different DCPs that are run through this generative engine, all different. Again, the, the opening is the same, the ending is the same, but in the middle, it's different. There may be some scenes that repeat within each five versions of this, but there may be scenes that don't, or they may be in different order in different places with different music and different backgrounds. So literally you could go to the, the festival and go to a screening on Friday and then see it again on Monday and it will be different. And it's not going to necessarily be like, 
100% different. That's not the intention here, but it will be different enough that you can have a conversation with somebody who saw it on a different day and say, yeah, that part with Bono is so amazing. They're like, I didn't see the part with Bono, but I saw the part with David Bowie and that, and the first person's, I didn't see David Bowie. So it's a really fascinating way of approaching, keeping things interesting while still telling a very full, complex story about Brian Eno and the way he works, his own generative way of, of creating. I love that. I love how interactive it is and how it clearly will spark conversation among audience members. Let's jump back to the World Cinema Documentary Competition and pick up a couple of more titles you'd like to highlight. Again, I'll start from the back. This film, Soundtrack to a Coup d'etat, it is by Jan Grimmenprey. He was at the festival many years ago with a film called Double Take, established artist, Belgian. Some of his previous films have looked at geopolitical issues and scandalous things that happen around arms dealing and other things like that. And making his previous film, he wanted to look at what was his own country, Belgium, involved with. And so that's the origin of what this film is about, which is a really masterful epic film that looks at Cold War politics and looks at the sort of period beginning in 1960 of African decolonialization, where countries were starting to seek independence from the European uh, colonizers, while also bringing in things around sort of U.S. and USSR Cold War politics. For example, a big part of this film is the Jazz Ambassadors program that the U.S. had to try to theoretically, you know, soft diplomacy to try to help way hearts and minds. But he looks at it in the context of how is this being deployed as distractions from things that the CIA was doing, the things that the USSR was doing, things that were going on in the UN around these very, very tumultuous times in the 1960s. It is a dense in a really great way film. It is a beautiful film that is eye-opening. It's just a masterful film that I think is going to be illuminating for audiences that, that take a look at it. I'm really happy to have that as part of the lineup. But I'll, I'll quickly point to a couple of other films within the world of documentary competition. A, a really special film is Black Box Diaries. This is by a journalist, first-time filmmaker, uh, Shirio Ito, who is a Japanese filmmaker. She had a horrible sexual assault take place that she wrote about, reported about, um, also wrote a book about, and this is her way of telling the story in a larger way within film really brings a journalistic approach to this kind of topic. It kind of led to a sort of Me Too reckoning within Japan. I'd also love to point out Nocturnes, which is just one of those sort of cinematic nonfiction, beautiful films on the big screen. This looks at moths. Who knew? Hummingbirds and moths in the lineup. This is a film about a scientist who is studying moths up in the mountains. It is an Indian film. It looks beautiful projected uh, on the big screen, but it also tells a, a subtler story around climate change. So it's an interesting kind of angle that it takes on that as well. And then I'd love to also point out maybe Never Look Away. This is the first documentary from Lucy Lawless, who the audience members may remember as Xena the Warrior Princess. But this is about the CNN camera woman, Margaret Moth, also a Kiwi, just like Lucy Lawless is. And it really makes a lot of sense that this strong woman who's known for this legendary, iconic role on television takes on this very powerful woman who's behind the scenes in CNN in a war conflict zone. That's the work that she does. Really gripping film there as well. So those are some of the World Cinema Documentary Competition titles, but the entire lineup of 10 is, are films that we are all really excited about. We can't let you go without talking about premieres. Premieres yes. is a section that includes fiction and nonfiction. What are some of the nonfiction highlights? I have to point out Girl State. This is obviously sort of a companion piece to Boy State by the same filmmakers, Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. We were so thrilled that this film came our way. 
the main question that everybody would ask Jesse and Amanda when watching Boy State was, what about Girl State? And, and in fact, they really quickly went to work on trying to identify the appropriate place to tell this story. In this case, they're looking at Girl State in Missouri, which happened to take place this particular year on the same campus at the same time as Boy State. What that does is it allows this film to be its own thing while also allowing the general gender inequities that exist between the two programs to come to the fore. Really fascinating, great group of girls that are profiled in this film. They're speaking to different issues than Boy State, but also about these larger issues around gender and its impact and what that means around politics and how women and girls are involved with politics. I'd also love to point out Superman, the Christopher Reeve story. This is by the filmmakers who made the fantastic documentary about Alexander McQueen several years back. This is obviously the story of Christopher Reeve, the actor who's best known for playing Superman in the 1970s and 1980s. Tells a parallel story of an unknown actor, stage actor, who gets cast in this iconic role and what it turned into and made of his life. So deals with sort of the pros and the cons of that, the sort of idea of typecasting as well. And also tells a parallel story, of course, for those that know the horrible accident that took place that left him paralyzed, but also turned him into an advocate for spinal cord injury research. So really emotional watch for this one, really beautifully told, not a sort of puff piece, covers some really contentious territory as well, but uh, a really lovely film that we're, again, happy to have in the lineup. The last one that I'd love to mention is Power, which is, of course, by Yancey Ford, who made the amazing Strong Island several years back. Power is just a really cogent essay film around policing in America, the origins of policing, the really surprising origins, I should say, multiple origins. And it just is handled in such a thoughtful, thought-provoking way. This is a conversation piece. People will watch this film and will be talking about it for hours to come afterwards. Really proud to have this one in the lineup. There's so many others, but I know we're running out of time. You've got the floor for one more film. Pick one more film in any section. I referenced it really earlier just for a second, but in Next, we have three documentaries in Next, but the, the one I'd love to just draw attention to is Seeking Mavis Beacon. This is a special film. It is by a filmmaker who essentially tells the story of her own investigation into this sort of lost cultural icon, Mavis Beacon, who was the figurehead, the, the image behind this popular software called Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. It is a story about representation. It is a story about what does it mean to audiences to see somebody like them reflected within a piece of technology, within a software that wasn't typically showing Black faces or Black people. It is a film of joy and exploration uh, and discovery. This is the kind of film that we love to discover and share with audiences because it is unexpected and just has a certain level of engagement with it that we think audiences are going to fall in love with. So I just a special shout out for that one because it just is a beautiful film that we're really excited to share. Wow. There is so much to look forward to. As always, I'm sure Sundance will be a place to discover amazing new work, amazing new artists. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you do year-round, for being with us today, and for presenting what we know will be a very special lineup. Thank you so much, Ken. Always a pleasure to chat with you on Top Docs. I look forward to this conversation every year, so thanks for having me. Me too, and I'll hopefully see you on the mountain. Sounds good. Top Docs is a production of Wooly Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. Mike.